Thank you for listening in to this week's sermon from Restoration Church Bryan. To learn more about Restoration, you can find us online at restorationbryan.com. We are so grateful for all those who are able to listen online, and we pray the message encourages you and challenges you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you are not already connected to a local church, we would love to invite you to join us for worship. If you are listening from another city, we pray that this message is a great supplement to your walk with Christ, and our hope is that you would have a gospel-centered local church that you call home. Thanks again for listening. Good morning. We are in our series on praying through the Psalms. And, and before I dive in, I want to quickly kind of cover why we're doing this, right? Because I think there's this idea that, that we're going through a series so that you can learn something about the Psalms. And ho- hopefully, yes, you do learn something about the Psalms. I think the bigger thing that we're trying to do here is we're trying to give you some prayer tools, We're trying to equip our church body uh, to be able to pray more strategically and more intentionally uh, to gain the heart of Christ. And so as we walk through each one of these psalms that we're preaching on, uh, what what we're doing is hopefully serving as as an example to you as to what it looks like to do this with other psalms. So, So as we walk through each of these verses, each of these passages and sections of the psalm, pay attention to how we're pulling out the theme, and we're using the theme of that psalm to serve as the prayer point for what we're praying for. Uh, and you can do this with all of the psalms. You can do this with all of Scripture. And it is God's joy and pleasure to hear His children praying His word back to him. So that's, that's the first thing, is to give you tools to, to be uh, more intentional in your prayer life. Uh, the, the other reason is to help you process life better. Uh, the, the Psalms are filled with just a myriad of emotions and thoughts and feelings uh, as the psalmist records what's going on inside. And, and the beauty of this is that it covers a, it's such a huge range of emotions and thoughts about life. And and what I've always said about the Psalms is that I feel like they give me permission to feel and think a certain way, right? That if I'm angry, if I'm upset, uh, that these Psalms will give me voice to that. They'll give words to the cries of my heart. Um, and, and so those are the two big reasons we're doing this. So I don't want you to miss, like, didn't, don't just come to church and say, oh, I learned a lot about Psalm 63. That's great. What we want you to do is be more intentional in your prayer life. Um, so today, uh, before we kind of get rolling into Psalm 63, I want to front load what we're going to be doing, uh, because it's going to be a little bit different. The, the flow of the service is a little bit different. Uh, we're going to be praying a little bit differently than, than we've prayed before. Uh, so what we're going to do is, is when it comes to our prayer times, we're going to break into groups of like three or four people. Um, and, and listen, it, let me front load this. If you're not comfortable with that, that's okay. And in a moment, when I tell you to, to find those two or three people, all you got to do is kind of close your eyes and bow your head, act like you're praying, or check your phone, make sure it's silenced, and then they'll know, hey, this person doesn't want to be included, and that's okay. Um, later, if you decide that you want to join a group, just scoot in. They'll welcome you in warmly. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, so just uh, front-loading that. So here's what I want you to do. Without talking, <laughs> I want you to look around, and I want you to just make eye contact with a couple of people, and it's going to be like... You and me? Okay, cool. And you you and me, right? We're good. So, we got it? Okay, so do that now. Look to the right, to the left, front or back, whatever. Two or three people uh, that you're going to be praying with. 
Now, now here's the deal. During our prayer times, there will be time for probably one, maybe two of you uh, to pray. But while that one person or those two people are praying, the other people in the group, I want you to agree in prayer. Say, yes, Lord. Amen. That's good. Yes, that. That's what we're going to be doing, okay? Um, and, and when it comes time to kind of close that season of prayer, I'm simply going to say from the stage, Lord, and then you're going to know, hey, he's about to pray. We're going to dial our prayer down. Does that make sense? Okay, that's where we're going today. I just don't want you to be surprised here uh, when we dive in. Um, so here's a question. Why are we praying out loud? Why are we praying out loud corporately together as a church body? Um, there, there's kind of three reasons uh, that I see to do this. First, it will help us gain just a tiny perspective of what the Lord hears when, when our church prays. So as we're all praying, and there's kind of like this almost like a holy roar of prayer going up, I want you to think about the fact that God hears every one of our prayers simultaneously. That's huge. So that's the first reason. The second reason is to encourage our church body. See, as, as we pray, as we pray out loud, the Lord may use you to give voice to the prayer that somebody else in your group has, but hasn't been able to voice so far. And so this is going to be a way to, for us to uplift and to edify our, our church body. Um, and, and so as you're praying, understand that that is going to be a ministry to the people around you. And the third reason is this, and it's the, to frighten the enemy. <laughs> I want us to pray out loud because I want us to frighten the enemy. Listen, the enemy hates it when God's children talk to him. He hates it. Um, he cannot read your mind. You need to know that about the enemy. The enemy cannot read your mind. And so if we're praying, and it's like we're praying in our head, the enemy cannot hear our prayers. But when we speak that out, he hears what we're saying, uh, and it terrifies him as we pray God's word back to him. He can't stand it, and he flees. So we're talking to our Father where the enemy can hear us. Think back to uh, your elementary school days, right? There's the bully on the playground who's, who's beating everybody up and all that. The game changes when your dad's there. And you start talking all kinds of smack so that bully can hear, right? Dad, you're bigger than all of these kids. I bet you could beat all of them up. And you kind of give that bully that sideward glance, sidewards glance like, my dad can beat you up. That's what I want to see happen today. I want the enemy to know that God is more powerful and that we believe that and we're going to stand on that. And I want him to run away with his tail between his legs. So as we pray out loud, we're going to pray. We're going to pray God's word and we're going to ask the Lord to move and the enemy is going to flee. So before we jump into Psalm 63, I want to open us in prayer appropriately, I think. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for an opportunity to get into your word. Thank you for the fact that your word serves as a guide to our feet, a lamp into our path. Thank you for the fact that your word will sharpen us and draw us closer to the heart of Jesus. Thank you for the fact that you gave us your word, that there are 66 books here that contain the very words of God. And as we read them, we're not reading just aimless words on a page. We're reading the heart of our Father in heaven. And so may we walk away from this transformed this morning. May we walk away more in love with Jesus because he is the only one who's worthy of every ounce of our affection. God, may we cling to you when life is crumbling around us knowing that you can't crumble. 
And may we walk away with handles to be able to intercede, to pray, to seek you when those times come. Father, we, we love you. We praise you. We ask that you would be with us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in Psalm 63. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. It's also in your worship guide and will be up on the screen behind me. Psalm 63 is a psalm of trust, okay? Uh, it was written by King David, and it was written after his son Absalom had attempted a, a takeover of the throne in 2 Samuel 15. I'll just go between the uh, horn blasts there. <laughs> See, I wish we could get the trains to flee when we preach God's word, right? So things aren't looking good for David here, okay? We need to understand that. Absalom, his son, has, has tried to take over. This is 2 Samuel 15. Uh, Absalom had won the hearts of many of the people of Israel by trickery, right? He had set himself up as kind of this counselor, and he had tricked people. They, they fell in love with him, um, and then he begins to claim that he is the new king, and when it looked like Absalom's hostile takeover was going to succeed, uh, David and those loyal to him fled. They left the city and they went to the wilderness. So he had been removed from his home. Um, many in his kingdom had betrayed him to follow his son Absalom, and he didn't have anywhere specific to go other than to the wilderness. And to top it all off, he wasn't sure if he's ever going to see the sanctuary of the Lord again or the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and so he is in this place where everything he knows, everything he loves, everything that is precious and dear to him has kind of been stripped away. And we get a glimpse in uh, 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, of, of where he's at in this process. And it says this, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. Okay, so this is a picture that we get of David. This is a man in despair. Uh, this is a man with an uncertain future. Uh, this is a man whose own family is seeking his, his demise. And so I want you for a moment to just kind of put yourself in David's shoes. I, I want you to think about what he might be feeling in this particular moment. Picture that today everything's great. Everything's normal. Everything's fine. You're at home. You're comfortable. You've got all your stuff. You're right there with the, within... Uh, uh, easy range of the, uh, the tabernacle to worship. And then the next day, everything gets pulled out from under you. You're on the run for your life. One moment you had everything you needed, the next moment you don't know where your next meal is going to come from or where you're even going to sleep. You've lost relationship with your family and they're trying to kill you. There's nothing stable for you in this world. See, I, I think about this. I think about this situation that David's in, and I, I'm like, I'd be melting. <laughs> I mean, I, I become a ball of anxiety when I can't figure out where the money's going to come from to pay my car note, and they're not going to kill me for not paying that. that. That's where David's at right now, where all of this stuff has come crossing uh, in, in perfect intersection to where it's just this terrible you know, train wreck on top of a dumpster fire, and it's in the middle of this that he pins the words to Psalm 63. Okay, we have to get that context here. So let's dive in, verses 1 to 4. And in this first section of Psalm 63, our prayer point, main prayer point, is going to be Jesus, my soul's desire. So verse 1 says this, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. 
So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. I love how he begins this psalm. I love it. He says, God, you are my God. You, you see, this, this statement is the bedrock for everything that he's going to say afterwards. Without this statement, none of the other statements even matter. See, God's not just some far-off entity that is unconcerned with David's life. He's David's God. And based on that truth, David's heart, mind, and soul focus not on the absolute train wreck that he's in the middle of right now, but on the Lord. Look at these proclamations that he makes. He says, earnestly I seek you. Right? He, he is longing for the, for the God of all creation. He says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Your steadfast love is better than life. I will bless you as long as I live. Remember, David very, may, may, very likely may lose everything in his life. His backstabbing son is coming after him, uh, yet it is as if none of this matters. Because all he's wanting right now is the Lord. He expresses one desire, God, you're my God. I want to seek you. I want to experience you. I want to be with you. Your love is better than life itself. Again, I, I would be a mess in David's shoes. I, I, I would be an absolute mess. Here's my confession to you. Often my praise is circumstantial and my faith is fickle. I, I'm way too tied up with the things of this world. And, and because of this, uh, my praise of the Lord is conditional. When things are going great, my praises are abounding, kind of. And then when things are bad, then my complaints are abounding. And so what I do is I end up settling for the wasteland of this world and miss the better-than-life love that he offers me. And think about how those outside the faith perceive God when they see me do this, when they see us do this. What, what does this tell them? It tells them that he really isn't worth that much. It tells them that we don't believe what we say we believe. See, when we live like this, it shows, us, shows the world that we don't believe that the Lord is better than life. We don't believe that he is uh, able to sustain us. We don't believe that he's more powerful than our storms. We don't believe that he's more uh, powerful than our enemies. Uh, we don't believe that he's in control and that he knows what he's doing. And then it shows that we aren't surrendered to him as our Lord, as our God, as our King. Because if we truly believe this, if we truly believe this, then everything in our life could come crashing down around us, and our faith would still be firmly fixed on the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, our actions reveal our true beliefs. I don't care about what you say you believe. Show me what you believe. And that's what David is doing here. So side note, that does not mean that our emotions aren't all over the map. Let me just throw that out there, because I think that, that sometimes you can get browbeaten from the stage and say, oh, well, just suck it up, buttercup. 
And that's not the the case at all here. Emotions are something that are God-given. Every single one of them, by the way. And they are to serve as a kind of barometer of what's going on in our souls, what's going on inside. Not so that we can be driven by them, but so that we can respond appropriately when we have those emotions. And David displays this beautifully for us throughout the Psalms, but especially here in Psalm 63. His praises were not impacted by the fact that he was enduring incredible loss and and treachery. You see, when Jesus is our soul's desire, we recognize that even the best things in our life cannot fulfill us like he can. And we press into praise when those disappointments wash up on our shores. So we're going to take that and we're going to enter into our first prayer time. And during this prayer time, there's kind of two things that I want you to do. First, I want you to begin your prayer with, oh God, you are my God. Now listen, I know the altar call typically comes at the end of the service. That's not how it's going to happen today. Listen, if you cannot say that, oh God, you are my God. If, if you've not had that personal man, response to God to say, yes, I want to know you and I want you to be the, the Lord of my life, then that needs to happen first. And if you sense that the Lord is calling you, respond. Don't, don't dumb that down. Respond to that. Uh, turn to those that you're praying with and say, listen, I, today I want God to be my God, not just some God. He's going to be my God today. Jesus bled out and died on a cross. He was buried in a tomb and he raised three days later so that we could come to new life in him and be granted a faith that endures the storms of this life. So don't delay in doing that. So if you need to make God your God, do that now and turn to them and say, hey, I'm going to do this. And then you guys celebrate with that person because guess what? You just gained a new brother or sister in Christ. So that's the first thing. When you pray, pray and say, oh God, you are my God. And then the second thing is I want you to express your desire for him. know that it's hard for us because we've got so many things that we desire. So maybe part of this is going to be a confession time. Lord, I've, I've desired this more than I've desired you, but I want to desire you. You can even pray verses one to four if you want to. Um, you can say things like, your love is better than my family, or your love is better than my accomplishments, or I want to see you. I want to know you more than I want this, that, or the other thing. And so, again, when we're ready to close, I'm just going to say, Lord, and dial your prayer down. Okay, y'all ready for this? It's taking us out of our comfort zone a little bit. All right, so turn to those two, three people, and you guys just start praying, okay? It's going to get loud and chaotic in here. That's okay. Lord, thank you that you're my God. Thank you that you allow me to call you my God. Lord, thank you that you're the God of restoration. And Lord, our our desire is for you. God, there's so many things in this world that are vying for our attention. And God, we, we repent because we cave to that too easily. We settle for the desert places and we don't drink in the living water of God. But Lord, we want to. So I pray that you would give us that perspective knowing that your love is better than life. We ask that you would draw us in deep. Father, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this first point was that uh, Jesus was, is my soul's desire. And the second point is this, that Jesus is my soul's delight. 
Okay, so he's my desire and he's my delight. These two points are tied very, very closely together. In, in the Lord's economy, the true desire of Jesus leads to true and enduring delight in Jesus. So let's read the words of David in verses 5 to 8. It says this, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. See, these four verses of praise are the outpouring of the first four verses of faith. Look at how these verses are tied. If you look at the two sections from verses 1 to 4 and then 5 to 8, it says this, my soul thirsts for you in verse 1, right? That he is intensely desiring God, like something that's driving him and moving him forward like thirst. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied. And here he's saying that my soul is not going to want for anything. I will have over an abundant uh, excess of what I need. So there's that, that parallel there. Look at uh, verse 1. My flesh faints for you. So he's experiencing physical weakness because of his desire for God. But in verse 5, he says, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. He's literally talking about singing at the top of his lungs, which, by the way, if you're on the run for your life, typically singing at the top of your lungs is not a great way to maintain a low profile. But that's where he is, right? He says, my flesh faints for you, and next thing, I'm singing at the top of my lungs for you. Verse 1, he's in a dry and weary land. Literally, he describes himself as being in a desert. And I think that's a metaphor not only for what's going on in his, his uh, uh, situation, but where he's at. Like, this is, this is a desert and a dry place. But then verse 7, he is in the shadow of God's wings, He's literally being covered and protected by God from all of the elements that are they're seeking to do him harm. Verse 4, he says, I will lift up my hands. This, I get this picture of him longing for the Lord, like I've, I've got to have you. I've, I've got to have more of you, this, this praise of God. And then verse 8, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So you have this imagery as if David has gotten a hold of the Lord and he's, he's cleaved to him. This is the same language that it uh, uses when a husband cleaves to his wife, that there's not gonna, they're not going to be separated from here on out. And he's upheld by God's right hand. Now, let's not forget something here. Nothing has changed from verses 1 to 4 to 5 to 8. Remember, he's still wandering in the wilderness. He was still parched with thirst. He was still hungry for a good meal. He was still in danger of losing his life to his own son. Yet what do we find? We find him completely, totally wrapped up in the Lord in spite of all of this turmoil. He had a delight and a satisfaction that was rooted in something outside of his circumstances. What does this tell us? What this tells us is that we can be satisfied in the Lord even in times of deep need. We can be satisfied in the Lord even when things have all gone wrong. We can be satisfied in the Lord when everything has come crashing down around us. And we see that here with David, that he's got the security. He's got this delight in the Lord even when his life is threatened. We see this countless times throughout history. If you look at the martyrs of the faith, 
that they've given their lives up for Jesus and they had a peace. They had a delight in him despite everything that was going on around them when they were about to be burned at the stake or beheaded or tortured for the cause of Christ. And this is, this is convicting for me uh, because I feel like so often my, my delight is conditional on my circumstances being a certain way. It's a very transactional faith in that, that manner. God, if you will do this, then I will do that. Or, God, I will delight in you when, fill in the blank. See, I think what this proves is that I'm not looking for delight in the Lord. I'm looking for delight in the world and in my circumstances. And the problem with that is that the world was never meant to bear the burden of my delight. The world was never meant to bear the burden of your delight. You're not going to find it. So I mentioned a moment ago that these two points, the first and second, are tied together. And in many ways, I feel like the, your delight in Christ is dependent on your desire for Christ. See, I don't think you can get, deli- get to delight in Christ without first desiring Christ. If we do not desire the Lord in the first place, then we're not going to pursue him. If we don't pursue him, then we're not going to be satisfied in him. If we're not satisfied in him, then we're not going to cling to him. And if we don't cling to him, then we're clinging to something of this world. And that is always going to fail us. Do you see the progression there? Track with me here. David's desire was for the Lord, which led him to pursue the Lord. And because David pursued the Lord, he found satisfaction and even delight in God. When he found satisfaction in God, when he found delight in the Lord, he clings to the Lord and the Lord upholds him with his right hand. And because he was clinging to the Lord, he was able to endure when all of this stuff began to happen in his life. See, this isn't, we we try and boil this down to be this super simplistic thing. I pray these three words and all of a sudden life is better, life is good. But you have to understand that the battle is won not when you get to the battle. The battle is won way before the battle when you start pursuing the Lord because you delight in him. And when you pursue him, you find him and you're satisfied in him and you cling to him because you know that nothing else in this world is going to hold on to your heart like he will. Is that going to be our story? Is David's story going to be our story? Or are we going to be clinging to the things of this world and every time it comes crashing down, just grab onto something else? And that's going to come crashing down too till we have to grab onto something else. So as we begin this next prayer time, here's my question for you. What are you delighting in? And if it's anything other than the Lord, I'm sorry to tell you, but it is going to fail you. I don't care how good it is. So we're going to pursue the Lord in prayer, and, and the first thing I want you to do is I want you to ask him to satisfy your soul and that he would be the song of your heart, literally that you would want to sing at the top of your lungs because he's that good. And then I want you to commit yourself to him and cleave to the Lord like David. Let his right hand uphold you in strength and power. So right now I want you to turn to your group and Go after the Lord like that. Ask him to satisfy your soul. Be the song of your heart and commit yourself to him and cleave to him. Lord, we're too easily satisfied with the things of this world. We delight too much in things that are going to fail us. Lord, we forget that the good things that you've given us in our life 
are only meant to point us to you, that we're not supposed to make it that the thing, that it's all about you. So Lord, we commit ourselves to you and we, we cleave to you, knowing that the only thing that can sustain us is you. We thank you in Jesus' name. So as David begins to wrap up this psalm, uh, we, we come to this last prayer point, and it's Jesus, my soul's defense. Let's look at verses 9 to 11. It says, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. I want us to notice three important things as David closes this psalm. First, it's only at the end of the psalm that David says anything at all about his enemies or the troubles that he's in. He's so focused on his desire for and his delight in God that this, this doesn't even get mentioned until the end of the psalm. What does this say about his fear? It says that his fear was drowned out by his love for God. See, I feel like this is 1 John 4.18 played out live, right? That, that uh, there is no fear in love, but that perfect love casts out fear. This is where I see David at this moment. He's not driven by fear. He's driven by his desire for God, his delight in God. Oh, man, I want to be wrapped up in my desire and my delight of the Lord like David was. That, that my pressing needs, that my struggles, that my relational strife, that would not be the first thing that I mention when I come to him in prayer, but I would talk about how much I want to know him and talk about how much I love him and talk about how much he is the delight of my soul. The second thing is, is that David did not leverage any of the resources at his disposal to vindicate himself, which is shocking to me. See, it, it's true that Absalom had won the hearts of many of the people of Israel, but there were many who were still loyal to David. There, there were literally thousands upon thousands of men who would, who would give their lives in an instant for him. And he, early on, he could have easily um, fought off Absalom's coup, but he didn't. He trusted the Lord to be his defender. And I, and I feel like one of our biggest problems is that we have an abundance of resources around us. We don't need the Lord, right? It's like, I'll take care of it myself. I've got the tools. I've got the resources necessary. And, and, and the struggle here is that when we don't allow the Lord to be our defender, when we don't allow the Lord to be meeting our needs like this, uh, we, we show the watching world that there is really no reason to consider Christ because we can do it on our own. We need to be first people of faith and then let the Lord leverage resources that he's put in our lives to be kind of the defender and supporter of us. And the third thing is that David is confident that his enemies are going to be toppled, which is interesting here, right? He's on the run for his life, but he's saying things like, uh, uh, those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. Uh, see, he knew that they were going to be beaten in battle, uh, and, and he says that afterwards, <laughs> that their bodies are going to be left to be eaten by jackals, which, by the way, that is one of the most disgraceful things that can happen to somebody. They don't get a proper burial, and that wild dogs are scavenging their carcasses. If you read the story in Second Samuel, we see that Absalom mobilizes his army to attack David, 
and his men, David musters his army uh, to, to uh, mount a response to this attack, uh, and it was an absolute massacre. Second Samuel 18, 7-9, it says that there were 20,000 men who were killed of Absalom's army. 20,000. And it clarifies, and it said that the forest devoured more men than the sword. The forest. The forest literally killed David's enemies. If that's not God standing up and being his defender, I don't know what is. The question for us is this, do we believe that the Lord is going to bring our enemies to ruin? And let me clarify something. Matt Ulrich mentioned this last week in his sermon. When we say your enemies from this stage, let me make something very, very clear. We do not mean somebody from a different political party. We don't mean some social activist that is against your social cause. We don't mean uh, your neighbor who's got a grudge against you. We don't mean anybody typically. What we mean is your enemy of Satan, the world, and your flesh are very real and very present enemies working in tandem to draw us away from the Lord. And the Lord is bringing all of these to ruin. Satan will be punished. The world will be destroyed. And our flesh is being weakened until the point where we're going to be glorified and released from the presence of this broken stuff that we're living in now. And so what is your response to the truth that God wins and our enemies will be defeated? Do we have a confidence that our enemies are going to be defeated like this? that literally the forest opens up and begins to consume his enemies. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Lord is going to make all things right? Do you believe that at the cross he dealt this death blow to Satan's sin and death? Do you believe that no matter what happens, you will see the Lord emerge as victorious and that you will one day be exalted with him? We're going to move into our final prayer time. And there's two things I want you to focus on in this time. First, asking the Lord to be your defender. And maybe there's something specific. Lord, be my defender in this regard. My flesh is so weak in this area. Be my defender in this regard. The world has got my eye. I'm allured towards it. Lord, be my defender that the enemy has mounted this attack against me. And I need you to be my defender. And then I want you to rejoice in him. Rejoice. Can you imagine David's heart when he sees that 20,000 men, most of them, have been eaten up by the forest and he's no longer having to run for his life? Are you going to rejoice like that when the Lord sends your enemies fleeing? So, on this last time, let's pray, let's seek the Lord, and then I will close this in prayer uh, and have instructions as we go into worship. So, go ahead and, and pray now. Lord, We need you to be our defender. We are terrible at vindicating ourselves. And Lord, apart from you, we have no hope. Apart from you doing something miraculous, we have no hope. But God, we know that you did something miraculous, that you sent Jesus to the cross, that he died the death that we deserved. But Lord, he... He conquered that. He beat it. And Lord, we are now granted life because of that. So Lord, I pray that we would trust you to vindicate us. 
I pray that we would allow you to be our defender. And God, I pray that our response would be one of praise and worship for you. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be so wrapped up in you, like David, we would not look to the things of this world to please us, but God, that we would cry out, oh God, you are my God, and that we would seek you earnestly. Lord, I pray that when we seek you, we would find you, that our soul would be satisfied in you. And God, that we would cling to you like nothing else. Father, as we respond now, I pray that you'd hear our praises. I pray that you'd hear our cries from your kids, just wanting to say how good you are and how awesome you are and how worthy you are. And Lord, hear our prayer and forgive us for where we have fallen short of that. Father, if there is somebody in here that you're calling to yourself, God, I pray that they would not stop that call, that they would not resist it, but they would respond to your voice and to your word. Bring them to yourself. Help them to know you. Help them to love you. Help them to trust you. And Lord, help us to walk faithfully alongside them as they walk this faith road. Lord, we, uh, we love you. We praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.